As we remain standing for the reading of his word from Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 43 as we conclude the chapter but not the sermon that Jesus was preaching. Hear with me now the word of God beginning at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who, dis- who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you've loved those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would open up our minds to give us an understanding of what this text is meaning, what Christ was doing. Lord, open up our hearts that we might be receptive. And it's there that we ask the Spirit would engrave His law upon our hearts in its true meaning, its true form, its true motive, its true fashion, that we might love. That we might live to the glory of our God in Christ Jesus. And that you would give us very specific applications. We ask that it would be very pointed to us individually. And we ask that it would be pointed to us corporately. So sanctify us as your church and your bride and sanctify us as your people. And we pray you'll be glorified in however you decide to do these things, not only today, but in the days that follow for the rest of our lives. Make this message to be pointed to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was when I was going through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't remember how many years ago it's been, it's been well over a decade, perhaps 12 years, 15 years, that I picked up D. Martin Lloyd-Jones's uh, treatment on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very classic work, probably he's most known for this particular commentary, which really was his series of sermons that have been uh, put in written form. And that particular reading did so much for my heart, but there was some of the quotes that are the most memorable for the entire sermon that came about in this fifth chapter and ones that I still remember to this day. As I came to this last portion of chapter 5, I reflected back on the things that I remembered that he spoke to me about with the Spirit. And as he took the Word and, and pressed it deeply in me, I never forgot some of those things. As I was evaluating, here I am on the, the end of chapter 5, I stepped back and I reflected, has there been much progress? And you know, sometimes you're not the best judge of that, but I was in some ways um, really wishing that I could give a better report of a much greater progress than what I'm often able to give. So here we are again in it, and I'm hoping in 12 or 15 years we perhaps come back to it once again, and I'm hoping that you can see my progress, but I'm hoping I can see it too. This is a powerful sermon. If we actually understand what Jesus is doing down in our hearts, 
As we come to the conclusion of this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, we've considered specifically the law of God that Jesus came to fulfill. It's not been an easy journey. And here we end on the climax of a statement that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And in some ways this seems utterly discouraging and defeating. The kinds of things that we're being told here and how we should live and how we should think, our attitudes and our responses, even the way we feel about others, fall so short of the ideals that Jesus reveals to us here. the kind of people that we're supposed to be as Christians. And what he's been doing in the Sermon on the Mount, all the way from the beginning, is he's been taking the Word of God, and he has been just doing this to you. He's been just doing this. It's the same thing that the law has been doing all through the Old Testament, but then when we begin to make it externalized, Uh, we begin to see the law as something different from what its intention is. But the law is meant to be a mirror. It's supposed to show you who you really are when you are seen in the presence of God. How God sees you. This is what it's doing. That's not been an easy journey for us in many occasions. There have been some sermons that have laid us low. Because what he's been doing is he's been showing us so much about really what we are, who we are, how we think, and what we're made of in the very fabric of the nature, the fallen nature that we inherited in which we were born. I see who I am, and I don't like what I see. When I see myself on the outside, or I compare myself to other people, it's a little more palatable. I can check some things a little bit better there, but therein is a deceptive pride. Jesus is showing my heart. Have you murdered anybody this week? Look deeply, look deeply. How do you think about your neighbor when someone insulted you, cut you off on the interstate, or said something unpleasant about you? What was going on in your heart? Not how you responded on the outside. What went on down there? What sprang up? Maybe you squelched the outside part of it. Maybe you didn't react the way that maybe you did 10 years ago, but what was still there? That's the unpleasant part. Maybe it never made its way to the surface. Maybe someone didn't know what your thinking was. Maybe I have anger in my heart, but it never was revealed. The bitterness, the resentment, the judgment, the envy, the jealousy, the internal struggles that I have in my heart that relate to other people when they rub me wrong or they do something that I don't like. This is what Jesus is exposing, what you truly are down there as it relates to other people and not the ones that you love and love you. Oh, how indicting it is that the ones that you love the most, you still see this. We live in a very emotionally fragile culture. We thrive 
on self-affirmation, on being liked, on being accepted. In fact, we have technologies that are based on cultivating those very emotional principles in us to our very shame. So you'll hear a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones today, so you'll know that this isn't just coming from me, but it's coming to me once again from a great man that God has raised up and even in his grave still preaches the word to me. He summed up our weaknesses this way, and I quote, If we examine ourselves, we shall see a glance that one of the most tragic things about us is that our lives are so governed by other people and by what they do to us and what they think about us. Try to recall a single day in your life. Think of the unkind and cruel thoughts that have come into your mind and heart. What produced them? Someone else. How much of our thinking and acting and behavior is entirely governed by other people? It is one of the things that make life so wretched. You see a particular person, and your spirit is upset. If you had not seen that person, you would not have felt that way. Other people are controlling you. Now, says Christ, in effect, you must get rid of that condition. You love, your love must become such that you will no longer be governed and controlled by what people say. Your life must be governed by a new principle in yourself, a principle of love. End of quote. Now, the law has been a mirror to us here, and that can be very painful, but it is not the intent to leave us into ourselves in the same, some kind of morbid self-putrefaction, but to move on to the glory of God where the joy comes in. It is for the joy set before Him endured the shameful death of the cross. And for you, that's the same principle. The joy is on the other side of your death. And I'm not talking about the eternal life. Oh, true. It's, it's glorious there. I'm talking about today. The joy only comes when you see yourself for who you really are. So as painful as the process is, it is part of the process that is bringing you to a joy. The blessedness of those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. When you see your own unrighteousness, your own utter helplessness to please God and If you can turn away from that, if you can turn away from glorifying yourself and turn to God and His glory through Jesus Christ, you're on the way to joy. And it's only there you'll find it. Joy is on the other side of the cross. And the first thing is you have to die to yourself. That's what the law is showing. Oh, this heinous, inside, internal man of the heart that only God knows. Even you can't know it. It's so desperately wicked and deceitful. It'll deceive you and it'll fake you out and it'll lie to you and you'll believe something that you are so much better than you really are. And God says, here. Oh, there's many things I wish to tell you, but you cannot all bear them right now. It is a great mercy of God that he does not just reveal all of our heart to ourselves all at one time. But the law of God and what God is doing here becomes very delightful when then it does this. And then you say, oh, and you beat your chest and then it does that. 
right? It starts reflecting the glory of God. As you see yourself, and then you see Christ. And you die to yourself, and then you see his glory. And folks, you think you know what's going to make you happy. And I'm telling you, your creator only knows what's going to make you happy. And only he can fill the void that is in your heart that you long to fill and often try to in other ways, in other means, or other things, or other people. But it is only God that's going to fill that and give you the joy. But you first have to die to yourself in order to see his glory. And to be perfect like God, which is not found in seeing yourself, but looking at yourself then to focus it upon the glory of God. Charles Simeon would say it this way, we grow upward to the glory of God as we grow downward in humility of self-denial. And one thing has been made clear throughout this entire chapter is that to be godly, we must come to an end of this old self. I was preaching through the very beginning of the Beatitudes. And I heard a number of Comments, oh, this is uncomfortable, oh, I don't like this, oh, I'm ugly, oh, help me. This is law, this isn't grace, oh, there's grace, but you've got to be just laid low. And it was laying us low, laid me low. It still lays me low. But I can't stop there. I look to the Lord Jesus Christ and it is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is a grace living that you must go to and cling to. And if you don't understand that you are not prepared to get this last and final climactic example that he is giving, he's been showing us a completely different principle of living. Completely different. And here he brings in this last example, the one of six, the last of six, when he tells us that the people of his kingdom will even love their enemies and be perfect like God is perfect. Love your enemies. The key to a joyful Christian life is to deny yourself of who we really are and seek the glory of God rather than our own glory. Now that is easy to say, but it is hard to live consistently. Why do I say it's hard? Because we too much try to do this in our own strength, in our own flesh, in our own ways, with our own works, with the external old man, and that just doesn't work. This is gospel living. The scribes and the Pharisees had a way of seeing the law where they really couldn't see themselves. Their ethic, their morality, their outside was was whitewashed, and they were addressing externalities, but their inner heart was a wicked, mess. When Jesus comes and he begins to confront the inner heart, man, they just turned on him with with heated anger. It eventually is that which led him to the cruel death of the cross. And it's the irony of God that it was the very love for them on that cross that would be their victory. In this last example, Jesus exposes the heart of the very law. The very heart of the law is love. 
Love for God and love for our neighbor. And Jesus rehearses once again what they had been told. You have been told. You have heard that it was said. You have been catechized from your youth for generations by your fathers. Something that is not truthful. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Now, nowhere is that commanded in Scripture. We've come to this last example to the place at which now it's not just simply giving us a quote that was true and they have misinterpreted and taken it out of context and twisted it into a new meaning, but now we actually have something that they grew up thinking it was the Scriptures that was not. Now, perhaps they took the hermeneutic that we've already commented on, the hermeneutic where when something is commanded, the opposite is prohibited, or where something has been prohibited, the opposite character is commanded. Perhaps they took that and they flipped it this way, that you are to love your enemies, I'm sorry, love your neighbor, but then we should hate our enemies. See, Perhaps they flipped it around in some way like that. Or perhaps maybe they're thinking back to those old psalms, those imprecatory psalms, like David, do not I hate them that hate thee, O Lord. Well, see, there you go. There's, there's a, a, a factor of, of hatred there that the Scripture gives us in these very uh, imprecatory psalms. But you have to understand those imprecatory psalms, which are still applicable today, were judicial in nature and they were never individually personal. The concern with these psalms was the glory of God and God's kingdom and His church. They were not concerned about personal vengeance, but rather judicial hatred. Judicial rejection. And this is something that is hard for many people to understand, that God can love and hate at the same time. He can hate judicially and reject those who reject Him and and who rebel against Him, and they can come under His judicial eternal wrath, and at the same time, He can personally love them. There is such thing as covenantal rejection while maintaining personal love. And if you're ever going to be a part of a church that has gone through excommunication, you're going to have to learn that principle dearly. But I dare say that we should already have been there if we can love our enemies. And that's what Jesus is commending. So the scribes and the Pharisees took these things, they made it into a very personal operation in their individual lives, and they felt justified when they hated someone that they simply wanted to hate. They didn't, or they despised someone who were offensive to them, or maybe someone didn't fit in with their particular stripes or the way that they interpreted life, and so they could then reject them. And they were utterly destroying the very principle of the law of God, which is love. Jesus says, But I say unto you, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Not, not just this external act. No, no, love them from the heart. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them that despite, despitefully use you and persecute you. 
We're dealing with the same principle as was given us in the previous example. When we are to turn the other cheek, we have a certain attitude of our heart toward others that do us wrong. But now in this present example, when we are called to even love those people, we have a certain attitude and heart toward ourselves. The only way you can treat others from the heart positively like that is you first have to become dead to yourself. You've got to die to yourself to do that. This is a key principle that Jesus would later reveal. And the passage I want to go back to is Luke chapter 9, when he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross is not some infirmity that you have that you must endure, as some preachers have interpreted. The cross is an implement of death. And if you're going to be Jesus' disciple, you're going to need to deny yourself and pick up your cross, die to yourself, and then go and follow Jesus. He wants you dead to yourself and alive unto God. That's why the Apostle Paul would later say that it is I who live. No, not I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It is God that works in you and through you to do of His good will and His good pleasure. Whoever desires his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? Now what he's meaning there is if you're trying to save your life, you desire to accumulate the things of life that you think are saving or beneficial or glorious or will make you more happy, you're, you're going to lose it. And you're going to lose it all. That's why it, it really does you no good to fear things. Just like it is to want things too badly. If you want seeing things and desire things too badly, God may just give you what you want. Isn't that what he did when the children of Israel cried for meat and they wanted leeks and garden? And God said, I'll give you meat if that's what you want. You fear things that you're not supposed to be fearing. The very thing that you fear may come upon you. That's what Job said. My own fears have come upon me. Let me encourage you. Find the gospel. Find the gospel. He who desires to save his own life. Saving his own life here is equated to the next verse in verse 25 of gaining the world. Whatever you think that means, however you interpret your life, however you live that, and gaining the world. It means catering to your desires and your wants and the self-centered focus that lives for pleasing or satisfying or saving or protecting self. Three areas of life that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has identified that we live for ourselves. Number one, self-sensitivity. This need to be affirmed and to nurture the self. Number two, a defensiveness, a need to protect the old self. Or number three, the self-awareness, a desire to focus upon the self. And all three of those, you're going to find the core of our problems. We don't realize how much of this self controls and governs our lives. 
Deny this, Jesus says. Lay it aside. You must die to that. And that's where the law is helping. When the law is doing its cutting work and it's laying you low and you don't feel so good from it, praise God for the law of God that is showing you His glory. And now... Turn your attention to the gospel, for Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Christ is your all in all, and in Him you are fulfilling the law because He has fulfilled it for you. But you need to deny that old self, deny that old self-pity, deny the self-interest, deny this hypersensitivity and sensitivity to others, and deny all this need for being affirmed and the defensiveness we have and this pride that defends our ideals and our dreams and our lives. The old self. Deny the complaints and the murmurings that God hates, root it out and deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. And if you're not willing to do that, you are not willing to be his disciple because that's exactly what he says. There's this self-glory that we so often can't see, this self-pity and this self-self-self to which we are so prone that we must deny and put it to death if we're going to have the joy. Of the gospel. Lloyd Jones again, quote, Whenever we are unhappy, it means that in some way or other we are looking at ourselves and thinking about ourselves instead of communing with God. Man was created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Therefore, any desire to glorify self or safeguard the interest of self is of necessity a sin. Because I am looking at myself instead of looking at God and seeking His honor and His glory. And it is at that very thing in man which God condemned. He goes on, holiness eventually means this, deliverance from the self-centered life. Holiness, in other words, must not be thought of primarily in terms of actions, but in terms of attitude towards self. Jesus came into this world to deliver us from self. If we believe that Jesus died for us on the cross, died for our sins, it means the greatest desire should be to die to self. Died not merely that we might be forgiven or that we might be saved from hell. Rather, it was a new people might be formed, a new humanity, a new creation, and that a new kingdom might be set up consisting of people like himself, which was void of self. He was the firstborn among many brethren, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. End of quote. It was those passages that were just laying me low. It's those passages I remember for 14 plus years. But the scripture tells us here, it turns our attention to God. See, he doesn't leave us to do this in our strength. He's not asking us to do the impossible. He's saying, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Even the heathen and tax collectors do the same. Now I'm asking you to do something quite unnatural, quite impossible for the flesh of man. And he's not saying here, if you do these things, you will become the Son of God. But if you are a true child of God, you will long to do these things. That's the true nature of every Christian's heart. Now, this is true because it is God that is working in you. He is the one that is leading you to say, yes, Lord, I want to be like that. Yes, I want to be like God. Yes, I hate this old man. I I loathe him. I want to see the glory of God living in me. And what is true of God will begin developing in his children. See? This is why he can say, be perfect. That perfection is not speaking of or not assuming that we'll reach an outward moral perfection in this life. But it's rather reflecting on the way in which the love of the Father has been demonstrated in perfection in some way that He loves His enemies that it's carried over into us. Sinclair Ferguson says this, The man who does, does that shows that his love is not controlled by its object, but by its own will and by commitment to the Father's ways. So what is true of God? See, we have to know what is true of God. Well, He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. And He is merciful and gracious to all men, which we call common grace. And we too need to be common in our love to all mankind. In other words, this love that is being commended is not merely limited to our brethren or our church family, but it's also for sinners and unrighteous and heinous, ugly, unjust people, people who are our enemies, who curse us and hate us and spitefully use us. We are to be unto them as God would be, and He's gracious and merciful to them. And we are to be His children and like Him as His children. Jesus loved the Jews, and it was the Jews that would crucify him. Jesus, even on the cross, said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He healed their sick. He drove out demons. He caused the lame to walk. He caused the blind to see. He did everything to the people that were loving and kind and gracious. There were nights he went without any sleep because he was busy about loving them. And this kind of the heart is also the heart of a Christian. We're not perfect in this, but it is not the heart of the world. Verse 46 and 47, this latter part says, For if you love those who love you, what, what's up with that? Because even the heathen do the same. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something quite contrary to that. Reciprocal love and kindness is true for all people. But the implication here is Christ and His followers are more than this. They love apart from reciprocity. In order to love the way God loves, in order to love your enemy and love those who persecute you truly in your heart, our treatment of others must never depend upon the way they are, 
or what they do to us. There was nothing worthy in us that caused God to love us. It was not something lovable in you that God caught your attention, got caught God's attention says, I'm going to love him. Look, look at that. There was nothing lovely in you that made God decide to save you and not to save the other person. What moved God to love was unmoved by anything outside of itself. As Lloyd-Jones again would say, it is an utterly disinterested love. And that's why to love this way, we have to be detached from ourselves. We have had to have been dead, detached, denied of all of those self-interest and focus. We recognize that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. This common grace is an expression of love. And this love manifests itself in concrete and tangible ways, such as praying for and blessing and doing good, which He's told us to do. So it is this emptying of self and filling with God that brings godly joy. When we are so emotionally fragile and sensitive and defensive and self-centered, we are not in a position to love this way. We must first die. And it is in these last two paragraphs that God's law goes deep. It goes very deep and exposes who we really are. Again, Lloyd-Jones, quote, The whole trouble in life and what our Lord is inculcating here is that it is something of which we must rid ourselves entirely. We must rid ourselves of this constant tendency to be watching the interest of self, to always be on the lookout for insults and attacks or injuries, always in the defensive attitude. All that must disappear. And that, of course, means that we must not be sensitive about self. This morbid sensitivity, this whole condition in which self is on the edge and so delicately and sensitively poised and balanced that the slightest disturbance can upset its equilibrium, that must be gotten rid of. The condition which our Lord is here describing is one in which a man simply cannot be hurt. So a couple of practical suggestions. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's daily. Luke actually inserts that word that Matthew doesn't put daily. Pick up your cross daily. Well, I've done that once. Daily. Give us today, Lord, our daily bread. Daily die to yourself. Die to yourself today. Right now, die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Tomorrow morning, die to yourself again. Deny yourself. And you're only going to do that with the Spirit. You're not going to do that in the flesh. You've got an appointment tomorrow morning that will give you the grace to die to yourself. And that appointment is with the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven that empowers you with the Spirit of God to live life in Him. 
And I would commend you not to skip that appointment first thing in the morning. Oh, I've skipped it many times in my life. And that's where I fail miserably. Whenever you find yourself in a posture of defense or being offended or hurt or sensitive, ask yourself, why is this upsetting me so? And if we're brutally honest, most of the time we're going to find that it's because of a focus on ourself. There's something we have not died to. It's painful. But if we're going to rise up to our Lord's teaching here, we must pass through this unpleasant aspect of the law And let's get on to glory. If God so decreed and would be delighted and glorified for someone or some person to abuse you in some way so that He can see that you're going to bless Him and love Him, that is His prerogative. And if He is glorified with that, then you so delight to do it. But you better wake up and have that appointment in the morning, lest you fail. And in this... Another thing that I would encourage you to do is turn yourself over completely to the communion with God. It is when you fall out of communion that you get back in communion with yourself. It is when you fall out of communion and step with God that you tend to to fall back to that which is your comfort zone or that which is your pattern in life, which is that old man. But that is what has to be died and replaced with the communion with God. You don't want to commune with that old man. You don't want to safeguard that old man. You don't want to protect that old self. You want that self to die and turn yourself over to communion of God. One last quote, and then we finish chapter 5. All moments of unhappiness in life are ultimately due to the separation of communion. A person who is in real communion with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ is happy, no matter what the temporal circumstances may be. A joyful Christian is one who is denying himself and following Christ and thus glorifying God with his all, and that is a daily activity. So now as we finish this chapter and this particular portion of the Lord's sermon... Do not feel that you are not a Christian if you're not living this kind of life fully. But don't presume to excuse the matter because it's hard to live like this and so you discount and you ignore it. Apart from the Spirit, it's impossible. But God, by implication here, is not asking you to do something that is impossible, but is so equipping you so that your righteousness from the heart will exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and you can live this quite different life. Let the law do its part. Let it show your ugliest, hideous self. Remember what I said back in the very beginning of this sermon. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then when we finally come to realize what the law is showing us about ourselves, then when someone else comes along and says the same thing that we have just said about ourselves, but they say it to us, that's blessed are the meek. And I can just receive it. Yeah, you're right. See? 
Let the law do its part, whether it's coming through a brother, whether it's coming directly. But then you turn to Christ and you see His glory and you know the power of His resurrection and you desire the fellowship of His sufferings and you see the power of the glory of God and that's what you're living for and there's where the joy is. It is set before the cross. On the other side, it is through the death that the joy will come. So you slay that old self and be moved with this kind of love for your neighbor. And that does not mean you're Christian only, as Jesus would go on to explain to the Jews around the Samaritan. That means all men, even those who are your enemies. And you love them as God loves them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what we have heard are words that are impossible for our ears and our old fleshy hearts to receive of the old man. It's just utterly nonsensical. But we are a new creation in Christ, and in this you have informed us of a transcendent character that only comes from Christ himself in this fallen world, from the spirit, not the flesh. We ask that you would... Guide us and fill us with the Spirit and bring forth the spiritual fruit, love and joy and peace and all the others. And Lord, how thankful we do know God as a Father who does chasten us. And no chastening is pleasant for the present time, but it does bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness, love, and joy, and peace. So may we receive well the means of grace and the means that you do instruct us. And may we see the power of the gospel in which we live as we walk by faith and not by sight. And may we know and taste of those heavenly things and the power of the Spirit working in us. And may we see progress May we see progress. Lord, we commit these things to you to work in our lives however you see fit for your glory because that brings us the greatest joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.